History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 47, Preparing the Way. You just heard about the Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast, and I really do recommend that everyone go check that out. It's a great, easily binged history podcast that's running just about concurrent with the story we're going to start telling in today's episode. Before we begin that episode, I just want to remind everyone that we're only three episodes away from the episode 50 AMA. To celebrate 50 episodes and two years of the History of Persia podcast, I am going to answer questions from you, the listeners. You can ask whatever questions you want about me, the podcast, history in general, or Persia and Iran specifically. Submit those questions to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com or reach out through any of the usual places online, through social media. On Facebook and Instagram, you'll find me as History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, I'm just at History of Persia. Patreon subscribers can message me there as well. The last regular episode left off in 484 BCE with Xerxes, now a king, with two years of martial experience under his tiara. He defeated an uprising in Egypt, possibly led by a false pharaoh called Samtik IV, 
then immediately face down at least one more rebellion in Babylon, led by some combination of the rebel kings Belshimani and Shamash Araba. Both satrapies, Egypt and Babylonia, were punished with a loss of status, diminished privileges, and in Babylon, the pillaging of the greatest temple. With new satraps ruling in both jurisdictions, Xerxes was finally able to turn his attention to his father's final project. Egypt rebelled in the last year under Darius the Great, while he was planning his second, much more determined assault on the Greek mainland. Xerxes expended many of the accumulated resources intended for that invasion of Greece on his campaigns against Egypt and Babylon, further delaying the start of the new campaign until the spring of 481 BCE. According to Herodotus, Xerxes was initially hesitant to undertake the invasion plan and considered scrapping it at the beginning of his reign. Herodotus says that he had to be convinced by Mardonius, a personal friend and cousin to the new great king, and the man who had led the most recent Persian reoccupation of Thrace and Macedon, with mixed results in 492. Herodotus portrays Mardonius as both resentful of the Athenian victories over Persian forces and disappointed that his own invasion had not conquered Greece. He suggests that Mardonius was trying to be appointed as satrap of Greece, which Herodotus always calls Hellas in his native language. Mardonius was supported by the now sizable cadre of Greek exiles hanging on to the Persian court. This included the descendants of Pisistratus, the tyrannical dynasty from Athens, and Demaratus, who I introduced back in episode 32. Demaratus was the one who was outed as a possibly illegitimate heir to the throne by his co-king Cleomenes in Sparta. Demaratus fled to Persia, while his cousin, Leotikidas, succeeded him to the Europontid throne. Historians have debated, basically since Herodotus published Book 7, Chapter 5 of his histories, whether or not this is at all accurate. On one hand, Herodotus routinely portrays the Achaemenid kings as easily manipulated into bad decisions, either by their advisors or by the dukeshish, the royal women, in situations where his dialogue is clearly fictitious. This includes things like Atossa convincing Darius to invade Greece just so she could get a Greek maidservant. That one is particularly egregious because we know for a fact that they already had Greek servants from Ionia and Libya. On the other hand, the story of Mardonius, the man who had failed to expand the empire in his youth, pressing to renew his campaign in his prime, is totally believable as is the account of Greek exiles giving compelling reasons for their Persian hosts to invade their homeland, and presumably restore them to power as Persian vassals. These are absolutely things that happened in other, less debated circumstances, but the fact that Herodotus leans on the gullible Persian king trope so often casts quite a lot of doubt on Xerxes' own motivations. Personally, I can see a version of events where Xerxes initially scraps the invasion to deal with the uprisings, 
while Mardonius and the Greeks protest and try to get him to go ahead with both simultaneously. But probably not one in which Xerxes abandons plans to invade Greece altogether. Not only had Athens in particular insulted Persian pride and challenged Persian supremacy on three or four occasions now, but southern Greece in general was kind of a missing piece of the puzzle. The Achaemenid Empire was indisputably the dominant power in the Aegean Sea and controlled most of the trade, but they didn't have an absolute monopoly in the region. The Greek city-states, particularly Athens but also its neighbors, were the last independent governments in the whole region. On top of that, Greece presented a valuable source of gold, silver, produce, and trade goods. Conquering Greece would extend the empire to the western borders of the settled, productive world, what we sometimes regard as civilization. Now, of course, this wasn't actually true. There was plenty going on in places like Carthage, and at this point, Rome was starting to develop, and as was the rest of Italy. But in the Achaemenid view of things, those borders were mostly at the Aegean Sea. For an expansionist empire, invading Greece would be the logical move at some point. Athenian resistance and exiled aspirations were just icing on the cake of reasons to go ahead with the plan. And of course, that's not at all to mention that Xerxes still had something to prove as an Achaemenid king. With the exception of the very short reign of Bardia, every single one of his predecessors had expanded the empire in some way. Whether it was Cyrus building it from the ground up, Cambyses conquering Egypt, or Darius adding territory around the edges. To be an Achaemenid king at this point still meant to conquer new territory. Simultaneously, though, we should not forget that Greece was also unessential. The benefits to controlling the peninsula were clear and numerous. But it was no Egypt. The squabbling city-states posed no significant political threat to the empire and Persian domination of the Eastern Mediterranean ensured that Greeks had to trade in the Persian system and play by Persian rules. It's like skipping episode 2 of this podcast, or The Phantom Menace. It's not 100% completion, but most of the benefits can be found elsewhere in the same system. The invasion is also the centerpiece of Herodotus' histories. And for better or worse, he remains the principal source for these events to this day. Or rather, it would be the centerpiece if the histories were finished. As I mentioned in the last episode, Herodotus probably intended to go on and document the Greek counteroffensive, as well as other events and cultures within the Persian Empire. In reality, the invasion of Greece is the end of the histories spanning books 7 through 9. But as we enter this climax of Herodotus' story, the style changes somewhat. Everything becomes more dramatic as we get closer to the most recent events described by the Greek historian. Up to this point, there have been more digressions and fewer speeches inserted into the mouths of historical figures. As we go forward, that ratio switches. He inserts more dialogue he could not possibly actually know about, 
and focuses more on the actual story that he's telling. It's probably one of the reasons that these events are so well-remembered. It's just good storytelling. I personally enjoy Xerxes' speech to his advisors and generals at the beginning of Book 7. It's equal parts supervillain monologue and inspirational speech by an army commander. It wouldn't fit with the terrible portrayal of Xerxes in 300, which I'll deal with later, but it could be inserted verbatim into a better movie. After this speech, Xerxes was given the pros and cons of the invasion plan from his advisors. His friend and cousin Mardonius voiced support for the plan and boasted that his armies could easily defeat the Greeks. Mardonius would ultimately lead the invasion force. Xerxes' uncle Artabanus voices the dissenting opinion in Herodotus' version of the story. This is probably one of the greatest examples of how fictitious this dialogue really is, because Artabanus predicts every single failure the Persians would face in the coming war in more or less exact detail. The scene concludes with Xerxes furious that Artabanus would dare oppose his plan, even though he was asking for opinions, before ultimately agreeing with Artabanus and deciding not to invade Greece. Then, Herodotus gives both Xerxes and Artabanus omens in their dreams that convince them to do it anyway, in spite of the 2020 hindsight that Herodotus used for foreshadowing just a few paragraphs earlier. Much of the story of the second invasion is told in a similar format from here on out. From 484 to 480, Xerxes focused his military resources in the West, probably a significant percentage of the overall military might of the Achaemenid Empire, on preparing for this invasion. The first stages of this plan involved preparing infrastructure. Unlike the previous Persian forays into Europe, the army Xerxes planned to assemble was much too large to be ferried across the water in any reasonable amount of time. The direct assault across the Aegean to land in Attica had already required hundreds of ships to transport about 30,000 Persian soldiers and their equipment, and that plan had ultimately failed. Darius's earlier invasion of Europe had been small enough that a temporary bridge was assembled for the initial invasion, but they were ferried across the Hellespont in stages on the return trip. The subsequent armies of Megabazos and Mardonius were presumably transported the same way, and neither had the manpower to effectively occupy Thrace, let alone successfully overtake and hold the much better organized city-states of Greece. Xerxes planned on marshalling a force so large that it would get backed up waiting for ferries to bridge the body of water, putting disastrous pressure on the local economies and infrastructure. Instead, he assembled two pontoon bridges across the Hellespont. A pontoon bridge is a crossing formed by connecting a series of boats or rafts side to side and then anchoring them in place. Xerxes, or more likely some of his advisors and engineers, determined that they would need two of them 
built near the city of Abydos. Based on Herodotus' description of the bridges and their location, modern military planners and historians have suggested that at least one of them could have been as much as three kilometers long. This alone would have required immense resources and expense just to build a full fleet of seaworthy ships, cast hundreds of iron anchors, and produce literally hundreds of miles of rope in Egypt and the Levant just to hold them in place. So with all this difficulty and expense, why did the Persians need two of these bridges just to invade little old Greece? Well, the terrain they were about to pass through in the Chersonese and Thrace was hilly and mountainous, meaning that the roads and paths were too narrow for the full width of the column to march in standard fashion. They had to march in two smaller rows, meaning the column was elongated. If they had followed convention and had the supply train following the soldiers, then the troops at the front of the line would have been effectively cut off from their food and water. As a solution, the supply line would march parallel to the main column of the army, which you have to wonder if these soldiers preferred because now there was no wait for the baggage train to catch up. Meanwhile, in addition to all of the boats needed to construct the bridges, Xerxes also called on his Mediterranean subjects to start rebuilding the Persian fleet in the Aegean. This required horse transports, cargo ships, to take pressure off the supply lines, and of course, hundreds of warships to directly engage any Greek naval resistance. As usual, this drew primarily on the resources of Phoenicia and the Anatolian Greeks, but Egypt and Cyprus also furnished a smaller number of ships as usual. According to the Greek historian, the fleet these satrapies constructed was 600 triremes strong. This is somewhat unrealistic, but historians are unsure of how much. As I've said before, many ancient historians note that the Achaemenid fleet operated in units of 300 ships, so 600 wouldn't be irregular, but it would be larger than most estimate the Empire could muster. We know that they wouldn't have all been triremes, the standard warship of the ancient Mediterranean. Herodotus also notes pentaconters, smaller naval vessels in the later battles. Some historians also suggest, much like the fleet at Marathon, that Herodotus included the transport and cargo ships in the total number, which would make 600 more plausible. Herodotus then ups the ante by saying that the bridges were constructed entirely of warships, specifically pentaconters and triremes. I've never seen anyone particularly dispute Herodotus on this, but I have no idea why you would use pentaconters to build a bridge. Triremes have a legitimate use, because they are taller on the water than most merchant ships, and could be positioned on either side of a smaller boat to lift it up and create an opening letting the merchant vessels pass through the Dardanelles. Xerxes planned to leave the bridges intact for the entire duration of the Greek campaign, so some makeshift gateway would be necessary. 
The only perceivable benefit to using pentaconters, so far as I can tell, is that when all is said and done, you now have a nice big fleet of ships to patrol your expanded maritime empire. One possibility, which I haven't seen discussed in detail, is the original bridges were made of more simple pontoons and warships were commandeered for their replacements. According to Herodotus, a storm battered the makeshift bridges just before Xerxes arrived with his army. It's plausible that smaller or older warships were commandeered for the repairs at the last minute. The bridges were not the only engineering feat that Xerxes demanded to prepare for his invasion. He planned to have his fleet shadow the land army as it marched through southeastern Europe. He also remembered the disastrous results of Mardonius's European campaign a decade earlier, which I described in episode 37, Greece Awakens. During that expedition to reoccupy Thrace and Macedon, the fleet had been ravaged by a storm off the coast of Mount Athos, a mountain peninsula in the Chalcidides. To avoid the same problem this time around, Xerxes ordered his engineers and western satrapies to build a canal at the narrowest point of that peninsula, which is about a mile and a half wide. Two Persian nobles were sent to oversee the project. One, Artachias, we never hear of outside of this context. The other was Bubares, who we've actually interacted with before, way back in episode 24. He was one of the sons of Megabazos, who accompanied his father during the initial conquest of Thrace and Macedon. He was also the young Persian noble who married the Macedonian princess Gugaya. Bubares oversaw contingents from all the western satrapies as they built the canal. The Persians also conscripted the local Greco-Thracian residents of the peninsula to work alongside foreign Persian subjects. Herodotus sets them apart from the workers brought in from other provinces but they too would have been considered Persian subjects at the time, and it makes sense that as many workers as possible would have been called on from nearby. Herodotus rightly points out that this may have just been a show of force by Xerxes, given that a mile and a half would have been easy enough to drag the ships overland. While these construction projects were underway, Persian heralds or messengers would have been dispersed into Europe once again. Some went directly to the Greek mainland, where they went from city to city, offering the opportunity to present earth and water, and preemptively submit to the great king. They visited every city they could, from Thessaly in the north to the Peloponnese in the south. They very intentionally avoided Athens and Sparta, where Darius's messengers had been summarily killed in 491, and they could hardly expect more luck this time around. The heralds to the Greek mainland had almost no luck in the south, dominated by Athenian and Spartan influence, but actually succeeded in turning the vast majority of Greek poles in the north. This makes sense given their immediate proximity to the Persian border in Macedon. While the southern city-states had multiple defensive points they could hope to meet the Persians at, 
it would be all too easy for the Persians to march on northern cities relatively unopposed. Other Persian heralds dispersed throughout the Western Empire to prepare towns and cities along the army's path for the arrival of thousands of soldiers on their doorsteps. Xerxes summoned at least nominal troops from every corner of the empire to join him on the march to Greece, from India in the Far East to Nubia in the Far Southwest and everywhere in between, Every subject people in the empire was at least represented, with the typical Persian, Median, and Saka contingents forming the core of the infantry and cavalry. In his build-up to the invasion, Herodotus lists the numbers of soldiers supplied by each nation or satrapy, and by the time they actually come face-to-face -face with the Greek opposition, he lists a total of nearly two million soldiers and an equal number of camp followers and supporters in the baggage train. Obviously, this is completely absurd. Logistically alone, it would have been impossible. Two million people would have been 5% of the total empire population, and 2% of the global population at the time. The resources simply didn't exist to support an army of that size. Not to mention, it would have wreaked havoc on both the economies of the places they visited and the economies of the places that just lost 5% of their population. As a rule, most modern historians assume it was one-tenth that size, 200,000 soldiers. This would still be the largest army the Greeks had ever seen, and quite possibly still the largest force ever assembled. It's possible that Darius had arrayed a larger army for a campaign in the east, like an invasion of India, and the Greeks had no knowledge of it, but nothing larger is documented prior to 480 BCE. It's completely plausible that it really was the largest single force ever assembled. The empire was still at its apex, with both India and Egypt under Xerxes' control, if there were ever a time that the Achaemenids could call on the largest portion of their subjects, it would have been then. 200,000 is still an absolutely massive number for the 5th century BCE, and would have been a logistical nightmare all on its own, let alone with another potential 200,000 support staff and animals in tow. But where did Herodotus get a number that was an order of magnitude too large? Historians have three possibilities. One, it's simple exaggeration. How could he make it more dramatic? Stick an extra zero on the end for good measure. Two, the Greeks had been misled. In an episode or two, I'll revisit this story. But the short version is that a few Greek scouts were captured by the Persians, but rather than imprisoned, enslaved, or executed, they were given a tour of the camp, told the size of the Persian army, and sent home. One theory is that these scouts were given an even larger number than reality in order to intimidate the Greeks with faulty intelligence. Three, my personal favorite because I'm a language nerd. Given how reasonable 200,000 is, and its relationship to Herodotus's 2 million, it may be that Herodotus's old Persian wasn't as good as he thought it was. 
If he was getting his information from Persian documents or accounts, he may have confused the word Hazarabam, a unit of 1,000, for Bivarabam, a unit of 10,000. This simple translation error would have resulted in the tenfold miscalculation. Regardless of explanation, 200,000 still required significant planning. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The route must have been carefully planned to make sure supplies were stored ahead of the army, and the force kept moving so as not to overburden any one town or city for too long. Tens of thousands of temporary residents suddenly appearing in a local economy could potentially wreak havoc on local resources. Herodotus says they drank small rivers dry, which is unlikely outside of even smaller streams, but may have been a logistical concern at the time. One possible clue to how this mass of humanity was organized comes from a reference in Herodotus that many have assumed to be an exaggeration. He says that the column stretched across a whole week's march on its way to Greece. This is ridiculous for a few reasons, the rear of the army being so far away would be utterly pointless in combat. However, it is possible that the 200,000 strong force was divided into sections as they approached Greece, with the last section seven days' march behind the lead, 
This would have been one strategy to keep pressure off of individual towns before the army absolutely had to be amassed in one place as they crossed the border into enemy territory. Part of this logistical concern is illustrated by a witticism Herodotus attributes to Xerxes, though the king probably never said these exact words. While Xerxes was surveying his bridges on the Hellespont for the first time, merchant vessels crossed the strait, carrying grain from Greek colonies in the Crimea. Xerxes asked his advisors where these ships were going, and they told him that they were bound for Greece, asking if he wanted them seized. To their surprise, he said no. Was that not their own destination? Why should he punish these ships for carrying his grain for him? It was in the Persian interest for there to be a constant stream of supplies where they were going. Another clue to the organization of this army comes from Herodotus's account of their march through Europe and into northern Greece. He doesn't have any account of how the army got to Anatolia, but once they were in Greece, the Greek historian tells us that they continued to pick up new troops from local levies as they moved through Thrace, Macedon, and the parts of Greece which had submitted earth and water. It's likely that a similar pattern played out across the empire, with soldiers from the most distant satrapies traveling and joining the next part of the army before continuing on. We can tentatively envision something like Indians and Saka moving west and south into eastern Iran, joining with contingents from places like Parthia and Bactria as they approached Parsa and Media. From there, they could continue on, either into Mesopotamia or Armenia, before joining together somewhere in eastern Anatolia, by then accompanied by Xerxes himself. Meanwhile, Nubians would have traveled north, joining with Egyptians along the Nile, before continuing up through the Levant and into southern Anatolia. The fleet, as usual, converged on Cilicia, on the south Anatolian coast, while the two contingents of the army coalesced around Sardis in late 481. Huge quantities of supplies must have been hoarded in Lydia that winter, as Herodotus tells us that Xerxes had the whole army marshaled and housed in winter quarters around western Anatolia before marching to Abydos with the two bridges in spring of 480. It was around this time that the original bridges were destroyed, and Herodotus tells the stories of Xerxes going full Caligula. Or maybe it's Cambyses, if we want to go with real historical precedent. But in this instance, if you know your Roman history, Caligula is an apt comparison. To punish the sea itself for destroying his bridges, Herodotus says that the king of kings had the Hellespont beaten with whips and iron bonds thrown into the water. This story comes just before the tale of a Lydian official asking Xerxes to relieve his sons of military duty, only for Xerxes to be outraged and have one of the sons cut in half with both halves displayed on either side of the army as it marched. It seems like a pretty run-of-the-mill polemic, trying to make the king look insane and bloodthirsty in the build-up to his fight with Herodotus's Greek protagonists. 
On the other hand, I have seen explanations that attempt to portray the flogging of the Hellespont as some sort of religious ceremony misunderstood by Herodotus. It's certainly possible that while water is one of the key sacrosanct elements of ancient Zoroastrianism, salt water was seen as polluted because it is undrinkable. The flogging could be understood as some sort of purification ceremony. It's a stretch, but probably the most logical explanation we'll find if we even want to say that's what happened. Along the way, Herodotus constantly foreshadows the inevitable failure of the campaign, and it's unclear how many of these things should be taken as real events and how many are included for dramatic purposes. He mentions an eclipse misinterpreted by the Magi as a positive sign rather than the traditional negative sign for solar eclipses before battle. He has Xerxes visit the ancient site of Troy, and has Xerxes express that the Persians will win vengeance for the Trojans, who were brutally defeated by the Greeks in their own mythology. Artabanus appears again, warning Xerxes about the fragile nature of the supply lines to feed an army of this size, and the possibility that the Ionians could betray them, both of which would prove to be problems. Artabanus' constant worrying actually got him sent home by the king. Finally, over the course of a week, the army and the supply column could march across the bridges in a grand procession, which Herodotus again tells us took a week to complete. Probably because the army was still moving in stages. He describes the ceremony involved with crossing the bridges. At sunrise, a religious ceremony, led by Xerxes himself. Incense was burned, myrtle branches were laid out on the road before the army. The king poured a libation of wine into the sea before tossing his cup, a mixing bowl, and an Akinakes dagger into the ocean after it. Accompanied, as Herodotus tells us, with a prayer to the sun. And all of this more or less tracks with what we know about ancient Zoroastrianism and Iranian religion. Burning incense and laying out branches were standard parts of religious celebrations all over the ancient world. Offerings in the form of liquid libations and physical goods are documented even in the Gathas. The Akinake's dagger was a symbol of royal favor in the Achaemenid hierarchy, and so it was a symbolic offering of royal favor, or maybe submission. The mixing bowl is less clear, but may be interpreted as the bowl where Homa was processed, the sacred plant and beverage involved in Zoroastrian ritual. The prayer to the sun can be interpreted in two ways, as there were two very important divinities associated with the sun. The great god Ahura Mazda himself was thought to watch the world through the sun, while Mithra was also a solar deity and associated with warfare in later generations. Either are possible candidates, but it's a little more tempting to assume it was Ahura Mazda, given that he is the greatest god and the only deity ever mentioned by Xerxes in other contexts. Herodotus gives several versions of when Xerxes himself crossed over, recounting that he heard a version of the story where Xerxes was first, where Xerxes was last, and that he favored one where Xerxes crossed with the cavalry on the second day. 
any of these would make sense because it would allow Xerxes to observe and participate in some very noticeable way. As Herodotus tells it, on the first day, a contingent of infantry crossed, led by the 10,000-strong Corps of Persians. Presumably, the professional standing army called the Immortals later on in the Historia. They were all wearing ceremonial garlands to mark their position, and were the first to cross the bridge, followed by other infantry. On the second day, the cavalry crossed, followed by a group Herodotus calls the ones who carry their spears reversed. This may mean that they had them with the points facing down, or possibly aimed behind them. Who exactly this refers to, or if they are mentioned by another name elsewhere, is not clear. However, given the context, these guys might be part of the nobles assigned as Xerxes' personal spear bearers. Behind the reversed spears came Xerxes himself, followed by the group identified as his personal spear bearers, and 1,000 more horsemen, who may have been a cavalry unit of the personal bodyguard. Behind the horsemen were still more troops from the various and sundry nations of the empire. And of course, as this happened, the fleet began to move north in order to shadow their march. Once they were across, the massive cosmopolitan invasion force marched up the Thracian Chersonese before turning west and crossing Thrace on their way to Macedon. At various points, especially in the Chalcidides, the fleet had to turn south, away from the army to navigate the coast. And it was during one of these times that Xerxes had the army halt and took stock of his force at a city called Doriscos. Of course, this may also be fictitious and used as a literary device for one of the most famous passages in Herodotus's histories. Herodotus uses Duriscos as an opportunity to take stock of all of the different peoples included in the army. This episode is plenty long enough without me reading the whole section, so I'll include a link in the description. The Catalogue of Xerxes' Forces begins in Book 7, Chapter 61. Many of these people are thought by historians to be nominal. Only a few hundred or at most a couple thousand from any given place. Some historians have even hypothesized that most of these warriors were only present to ensure that Xerxes had a supply of hostages from all of his subject peoples and then keep rebellions away while he was in Greece. To give a long but short summary of the section, he identifies the infantry as Persians, Medes, Kissians, and Hyrcanians, i.e. Western Iranian peoples. Then come the Assyrians, meaning all Mesopotamians for Greek's sake, and the list goes on. Many Eastern Iranian groups appear, basically getting more distant and unknown to the Greeks as he goes. Bactrians, Scythians, Indians, Aryans, Parthians, Sogdians, Dadakai, Gandarians, Chorasmians, Caspians, Sarangians, Pactias, Utians, Mykians, and Pericanians. Then he shifts back west to discuss Arabs, Nubians, Libyans, and Egyptians out of Africa. Then he shifts his attention north to territory more familiar to his audience, 
and discusses all of the peoples of Anatolia and Europe, which I won't list all of because Herodotus was much more familiar with the smaller local groups represented in that category, and it would be a very long list. Highlights include Lydians, Phrygians, Thracians, Armenians, and apparently some Saka tribes from the Black Sea, though it doesn't seem like Herodotus knew what culture they were really from. Along the way, Herodotus describes how each contingent was armed and dressed, and which Persian noble or governor was in command of each group, presumably representing the satraps or other local governors from each region. Then he goes on to list all of the different commanders and generals in charge of different units, which begins to make it clear that Xerxes brought a significant chunk of the royal family along with him in the form of brothers, cousins, and uncles. After the commanders, Herodotus enumerates the different peoples involved in the cavalry, following most of the same pattern as the infantry, though oddly leaving out the Persians themselves. He lists Sigartians, Medes, Kissians, Indians, Bactrians, Caspians, Libyans, Arabians, and Paracanians, before listing off all of their commanders and moving on to the fleet. The navy was crewed mainly by peoples from the coastal parts of the Western Empire, logically those cultures that already had ships and experience sailing in the Aegean. These were the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine, as Herodotus calls them, probably meaning the Judeans and their neighbors. After them, he lists Cypriots, Cilicians, Pamphylians, Carians, the various Greeks of Anatolia, and the nearby islands. He also explains that there were Persians, Medes, and Saka from inland waters present in this coastal navy, possibly as the commanders. After completing this catalog, Herodotus moves on with some more dialogue discussing the coming war, and has the march continue through inland Thrace rather than the Greek cities on the coast, which were likely a. to send t intelligence to the Greek mainland, and b. too busy resupplying his fleet at the time. As they marched through Thrace, most of the local tribes sent warriors to join the army as well. Much like Mardonius's first trip to the region, they rejoined their fleet at Thermae in eastern Macedon. From there, the Persian higher-ups joined Xerxes at the court of Alexander I, their local vassal, and made plans to cross the Peneus River, at which point the Persian Empire would finally enter foreign territory for the first time in a decade. But before we get to advance into Greece, the next episode will turn back the clock to 490, and we'll see what the victims of Xerxes' impending invasion did to prepare for his attack. Until then, you can find more information about the podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you can find information about me, the podcast, maps to go along with these episodes, as well as things like the Persian family tree and a selected bibliography. You'll also find the support page and brand new one-time support buttons. These are ways for you to financially support the podcast and make sure that I keep doing this on a regular-ish schedule going into 2021. But money is definitely not the only way to help. 
Tell your friends, either on social media, in what remains of real life, or tell complete strangers by leaving a review on iTunes or some other podcast platform. Tell them how great the History of Persia podcast is because that is the best way for an independent podcast like this one to grow and find a bigger audience. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.